Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU News. Today we're going to be talking about the upcoming year and what to expect in news with three other journalists. We have Max Jones, the editor of the Terre Haute Tribune Star. He's been the editor since the year 2000. Kayla Dwyer is a statehouse reporter for the Indy Star and Ethan Sandweiss is a multimedia journalist for WTIU and WFIU News. You can follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there, and you can also send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're not taking any phone calls today, but you can reach us in those ways. So thank you for being here. It's always good to talk to fellow journalists about uh, what we think is coming up and what we can uh, see from the previous year. I'm going to start by asking each of you um, what you think. And Kayla, I'm going to start with you. What you think was the the big story of 2023 and the areas that you pay most attention to? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, So if if I were to summarize the big theme of 2023, the big story, I guess I would say it kind of falls under this realm of uh, tide turning in the Republican Party, if you will. Um, You know, a a growing uh, disenfranchisement with the concept of just blindly following party leadership. And this this came to fruition in a couple ways for me. Um, You know, we have a a Republican gubernatorial primary field that grew to a size that hasn't seen in a generation. We have five heavy hitter candidates and you know, this to me stems at least partly from, again, that growing disenfranchisement with blindly following leadership. Um, you know, the the party no longer just shoehorning in their favorite candidate. Um, people increasingly want a real election. And I think this is good for democracy. And it's certainly interesting for journalists like me. But the other way that that came up, um, you know, our legislature last in 2023, um, really uh, grab some headlines with some of the social issues and culture war topics that they decided to delve into, <clears throat> despite leadership expressly saying they hoped that we would have a break from social issues after having um, instituted a near total abortion ban in 2022. You know, we have a rank and file who sort of didn't follow that um, wish from leadership and delved into the LGBTQ community, you know, bans on gender-affirming care for minors, et cetera. And to wrap up the year, probably the biggest bombshell from 2023, which will continue to be a story in 2024, we had the federal indictment of former state rep Sean Eberhardt alleging a public corruption conspiracy, which keyword being conspiracy in the state house. So it's a Fascinating time for Indiana politics, that's for sure. <laughs> Let me follow up really quickly. Do you think Mike Braun was the uh, was the selected candidate for governor and that these other four people have come out now? Is that part of what you're talking about? Well, honestly, I mean, most people that I talked to behind the scenes would have thought that Suzanne Crouch would have been mm-hmm. the natural next pick. Gotcha. Uh, if, you know, you go along with that sort of how it's gone in the past, it would have been her turn. But for reasons that are complicated to talk about, that's not what happened. Can I ask one more follow up real sure. quick before we change the subject? You you mentioned about um, the, the party, not you know, just like not blindly following the party. But isn't it right that this is the first time that the party has introduced a Senate candidate in Jim Banks? Wasn't that isn't this the first for that? That the party came it, out and said, this is our guy? 
this soon yes. yeah um, yeah for sure i don't know if that's some overcompensating going on okay <laughs> very curious in that fight with rust so all right Max, let's turn to Terre Haute. So I know you know you, you follow what's going on in the state government too, so you can speak about all those issues. But in terms of you know your neck of the woods, Terre Haute, what were the key issues in 2023? Well, again, thanks, Bob, for having me over here. I, I really enjoy coming over and talking about uh, things that have been going on and to represent Terre Haute's interests uh, with, with the radio station. Uh, Again, this year, Terre Haute has been the gift that keeps on giving, and we seem like uh, there, there's always any number of, uh, of items that we could point to as, well, this is the big story of the year. And truly, we have had three or four that in any given year uh, would have been a seismic type of a story. Of course, the big one is the most recent one for us, and that was uh, the victory of uh, a young and un, unexper- inexperienced Democrat uh, over a, a four-term Republican uh, mayor. So it was, um, it, you know, it's one of those things where where I don't think in many people expected it. Um, you know, were, were we shocked or surprised? Well, well no. Uh, but, but Brandon Sackbun didn't really show up on the scene until uh, early in the year uh, when he challenged um, another Democrat, who or a, the Democrat, a Democrat hopeful who had all run run previously, uh, so then the fact that he came in and won that primary, that in itself was uh, very eye opening in terms of what's going on in this Democratic Party here, which has really been out of favor in Vigo County for going close to twenty years now. Uh, so that they could come and then defeat a you know sixteen year incumbent who. Uh, uh, you know, maybe he wasn't terribly popular, but he wasn't unpopular, uh, and but uh, you know, you know, certainly ripe for ripe for picking. And and Brandon Sackman uh, showed enormous energy. Uh, he was a very attractive candidate, and I think you know, a 27 year old former Army Ranger uh, up next to any of us uh, of, of a certain age, you know, <laughs> the advantage goes to goes that direction. And and he ran a great campaign, very positive, uh, and it wasn't divisive. I mean, how how often does that happen now with the sort of rancor that exists in political can political elections up and down the ticket? Uh, all the way to school boards, and in this case, it 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 was it was not that way. And even since, it's it's been a very uh, genial transition. And uh, compliments to the former mayor for how well he handled the the situation as helping uh, new mayor Sackman along the way. As, as a longtime friend and colleague of Max Jones, I have to point out that last year on this program, <laughs> he, said, he said that uh, there's a big election coming up in Terre Haute and he expected Duke Bennett would win. Yeah, I, and I, but I'm sure I prefaced it by saying, you realize I'm always wrong. So. <laughs> what was the turnout like, though? I'm just curious how that, like, people just expected that Bennett might win. Yeah. Maybe his folks didn't turn out as much. The turnout was uh, slightly better than normal, but uh, Vico County and Terre Haute have, have uh, um, like Indiana in general, uh, suffer from very poor turnout, yeah. very poor voter participation. So it wasn't anything to jump up and down about, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that, the mayor being the biggest thing, the, the other big stories and, and, uh, uh, that, that came along was, you know, we lost a university president. Uh, uh, she will be leaving uh, mid-year this year. Uh, that was a, a somewhat tense and difficult situation for the university, which has been losing enrollment and trying to get its footing and really been struggling coming out of the pandemic to try to kind of find its way and, and get and get out a good path. So that's a big story for us. Um, we had uh, the, uh, the coming of a, uh, of a large uh, battery component factory that is now in the process of putting in a factory um, in, in our industrial park in Vigo County. And, and that's a big deal. You're talking 600 jobs over time. And, you know, for a place like Terre Haute in Vigo County, that's a big number that they, you know, something they haven't seen in a while. Uh, and then, of course, the big controversial story this year has been the, the rise of this uh, concept of uh, carbon sequestration and the proposal by Wabash Valley Resources to retool a uh, a, a former gasification plant in Vigo County, turn it into uh, – manufacture ammonia for the agricultural industry and then at the same time uh, go into a carbon capture process, which is 
which has become very controversial. And that, that will be another one that lasts for a while. Yeah. It would be only fair for me to mention that you <clears throat> predicted that the higher education situation in ISU would be the other big story of the year. So I nailed that one? You did. All right. Well, okay. one other one, Max, I remember you talked about was change in leadership at Vigo County Schools because yes. of some controversy. Yes. And I read a lot about that in your paper this year. And that was another one. We have a new school superintendent that started in the summer. And uh, uh, I mean, he seems to be doing well and getting uh, getting a handle on things. It's going to it's going to be a, a difficult situation. I think a lot of school corporations yeah. are are in trouble now with you know facilities and declining enrollments and our population growth is not going in the right direction. So you know there's a lot of issues around uh, around public education as well as higher education. Two out of three. That's pretty good. That's not <laughs> Got to bring I'll Ethan. Got to bring Ethan Sandweiss in. Ethan's from WFIU WTIU. Ethan. Thinking back to 2023, the stories you did last year, stories you followed, what were the what were the biggest ones? Well, I cover a lot of university news. I grew up in Bloomington, and uh, university's always been pretty interesting for me. And we've seen a lot happen at IU in 2023. There's been these huge investments in growing some of the more engineering-oriented parts of the university. There's been this $100 million investment with, uh, with Crane, um, working on some of that high-tech uh, research and development stuff that um, IU historically has, you know, done some of, but it's usually been kind of Purdue's domain. There's been a lot of investment as well in the Indianapolis campus and in trying to grow uh, some of that biomedical research stuff that um, Indiana University's president, Pamela Witten, has a lot of background in. For the most part, the state house and the trustees have been very happy with the leadership at IU. Um, it hasn't always been as harmonious between the administration and the faculty. So, for example, one of the big stories that I covered last year was how Indiana University responded to this amendment to the state budget that stripped funding from the Kinsey Institute, which is IU's famous sex and gender research institute. And it says that state money can't go to funding Kinsey anymore. So there has to be some kind of structural change. A lot of faculty and Kinsey supporters were unhappy with the way that the university introduced those changes and said that stakeholders weren't consulted. Uh, the university has since decided to put those proposed plans on hold, and they're going to be holding some listening sessions this month so we're going to see where that goes and whether the university leadership is going to reach a balance with some of those other stakeholders that they find a little bit more agreeable. Um, thinking about Bloomington in particular, you know, we're a one-party town for the most part when it comes to governance. But, of course, anyone who has ever been on our website or listened to our radio knows that doesn't mean that things are always harmonious here. <laughs> There's been... A lot of multi-year projects that have gotten to pretty serious stages of development in the past year. Um, the jail, relocating the jail has been a major one. Um, building the convention center and figuring out who's going to be managing that project is another. Um, and, of course, relocating the police and fire headquarters. Uh, we've seen division there between the mayor and the city council, between the city and the county, between... Uh, public unions and the leadership of some of these departments. Uh, and now it's going to fall on our new mayor, Kerry Thompson, to figure out how those projects are going to move forward. They're in pretty advanced stages of development. They are going to move forward. Kerry Thompson says that she wants to take a collaborative approach and really make sure that all these stakeholders feel like they're being heard. So we're going to see how a new administration decides that they want to handle all of these conflicting opinions on projects that are pretty well into the process. So many things to follow up there, but just really quick, the Kinsey, those meetings haven't started yet. I know you've been covering it a lot for our newsroom and nationally, but those haven't started, correct? They have not started yet. They'll be starting in a few weeks, and I will be at those, at those hearings, um, at those conversations, and reporting on what kind of input we're getting from faculty. Let's ask Kayla about just the legislature and higher education in general, but also did, did this story with Kinsey have legs for you? 
Yeah. Um, so it was, it was interesting how it came about. It was almost a, it was an unexpected moment on the house floor. I think it even caught some fellow house members by surprise. Um, you know, a, a freshman lawmaker, um, proposing this amendment during the second reading of the House budget, which is where pretty much anyone, actually anyone can propose amendments and it just requires a floor vote. And, you know, at that point, it's a Republican who proposes it. You don't want to be seen as voting against it. So it just kind of went through. It almost felt haphazard. Um, so it, it just sort of everyone was just kind of flummoxed by that. Um, so it, but it hasn't been really dissected in the state house since i almost think leadership at the state house would rather forget that that happened <laughs> um, but that's just my pontificating i think that i think houston had told us in an interview that oh that wouldn't make it in the final version and i think we kind of thought as a newsroom like okay um we're gonna we're not gonna go crazy covering it right now because it sounds like it's gonna be a dud um then you kind of yeah yeah yeah. And if, you know, if I can add in, I, I talked to state rep Matt Pierce and I talked to IU historian Jim Capshu, who have both seen amendments like this come up over the past several decades. And these things have historically failed. Actually, Holcomb was one of the early people to try and introduce an amendment like this um, back when he was running for the state house. Um, and one of the reasons why these have failed is because historically the Republican Party leadership has decided these aren't things that we want to advance into the final budget. There's been this kind of understanding between the state house and the university system that, you know, we kind of rely on each other and academic independence is something that is ultimately beneficial to the state's economy. And it seems like that relationship might be changing. Um, you know, also, like Kayla said, Larissa Sweet, a new member of the Indiana State House, unseated, a veteran member of her own party. And I think a lot of people are nervous about um, these kind of further right candidates potentially unseating people if they don't go far enough. So if you have any questions for us, you can send them to us at uh, News at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there. So um, other issues. So, Kayla, I want you to just give us sort of a primer on what we can expect at the State House this year. Is this a short session or a long session? This is a short session. And if leadership has it their way. They want to be as short as humanly possible. There's been much talk about limiting, getting in and getting out. I think there's some fatigue from the drama of the last two years. And, um, you know, they've even limited the number of bills that senators can file huh. from 10 each to five each with exceptions for the committee chairs. So they're really trying to be very efficient. And they keep talking about it as a session where they're just going to tweak laws rather than make huge wholesale change. Um, that said, you know, that some of the topics that are seem to be rising to the to the top of the agenda are, ha, are are serious topics and, you know, would have implications for the whole state, of course. It seems to be very much an education session. Lawmakers want to do something, although they haven't quite decided what, about um, the falling literacy rates among third graders um, in Indiana as well as the issue of chronic absenteeism missing more than 10% of the school days, which has become a serious issue since COVID. Um, they wanna do things about that, not sure what. They also wanna expand access to uh, affordable childcare. And that I think for the first time in recent memory is a bipartisan issue. We're hearing both sides of the aisle talk about that, which bodes well for the state house since they're completely dominated by Republicans, of course. Um, and then, you know, I think the other reason they want to get in and get out is because we have a very competitive governor's race, and I think they kind of want to get out of the way of that. So that's the other big thing happening this year. Last year, they took on so many of these social issues, as you mentioned earlier, with the abortion ban and with um, trans students, even some of these these book bans. I wonder if, um, I'm just curious if that would have to do about preserving some of these lawmakers too, by just maybe putting that in the distant past if possible. Yeah, you know, the the headlines, it was not good attention um, 
for Indiana. I mean, even though, you know, leaders will say that's 5% of what we did during the session. You know, we did so much else. We talked about healthcare, we talked you know, healthcare affordability. You know, we talked about all sorts of things, but the culture war issues are what grabbed the headlines. And that was um, not what leaders would have wanted um, in terms of, you know, the attention that the state house was getting from even beyond Indiana. So I definitely think that's a factor as well. So have you heard much about what some of these education proposals can look like? Because just when you mentioned um, absenteeism and low reading scores, I think those are, I think poverty too, like those are issues that are Mm -hmm. clearly affecting people who aren't of means. So it doesn't seem like they could just look at it in in a vacuum. Um, So I'm just wondering how comprehensive some of these things that lawmakers might be considering actually are. Right. Yeah, they they talk vaguely about, you know, can we look at the good cause exemptions, which are um, the types of circumstances that would allow a student to advance to fourth grade, even if they fail the standardized reading test called iRead. Um, can we look at narrowing those exemptions, but doing so in a way that doesn't harm certain populations that, you know, still need those exemptions? Um, that's about as specific as as they've gotten. Mm-hmm. They're, the bill filing deadlines are um, next week, um, Tuesday for the Senate and Thursday for the House. And we haven't seen those big ticket bills come in yet. There are, there are several bills filed, but not those. Um, chronic absenteeism... Um, have not, there have not been specifics on what they want to do with that. Um, but with, with the reading, it's, it's, um, you know, Republicans want to see the exemptions narrowed, broadly speaking, and Democrats have talked about, well, you know, we think that we should add more supports earlier so that students don't get to the point of that failure. You know, maybe it's more summer supported, like subsidizing more summer school or tutoring or lowering the mandatory uh, minimum school age from, I think it's seven now to five, which it is in many states. Mm -hmm. And the uh, public schools were a big issue in Bloomington and Monroe County this year as well. And Max, you mentioned that you have a new superintendent of schools in Terre Haute. So what's on the agenda for the new superintendent? What are the key issues? Well, you know, that that agenda is probably pretty long, uh, but one of the things that proved to be so difficult for the previous superintendent was coming to grips with the uh, with the deterioration of the facilities uh, in Vigo County. Uh, all, all, so many of the uh, buildings and structures that exist now were all built at the same time 40 years ago or, or so. So what happens when you do that? Well, now they're dealing with not just one piece here and one piece there. They've got an almost a, a universal situation where how do we deal with uh, with rejuvenating our, our our education facilities? So you know that is that is something that is going to probably be at the top of the agenda. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, the the county defeated a referendum that uh, that sought to address this. Defeated it soundly. Uh, and probably was a, a factor that led to the previous superintendent hanging it up and said, you know, I, I tried hmm. uh, and, and it didn't work. So, you know, let somebody else have a shot at it. Um, so so there's those issues. And, and then, of course, it's a declining enrollment. So there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of things related to to that that the school corporation is going to have to come to grips with as well. Yep. Funding education is always a huge deal with the legislature. They always point to how much money they give toward education. But at the same time, the Monroe County Community School Corporation has had referendums in each of the last two years, and they did pass, even though this year passed by a razor-thin margin. Um, Ethan, what's uh, on the agenda for – what's next for the public schools here in Monroe County? Sure. And I also wanted to clarify something I said earlier. I said, I believe Holcomb introduced some legislation on Kinsey. That's not correct, but he did criticize an opponent for voting for a budget that included funding for Kinsey. Um, Yeah, but in terms of MCCSC, like you mentioned, there's been uh, two referendums that passed in the last year, um, but the uh, superintendent has uh, incurred some ire from some parents for the schedule changes that were introduced at MCCSC um, that were fairly unpopular. And then there were listening sessions. Um, but the 
decision on the schedule changes was announced before the listening sessions were allowed to conclude. Um, so I think that um, it'll be interesting to see moving forward uh, what this kind of relationship between the school board and the superintendent looks like. Um, also in MCCSC, we have the, I think it's still potential merger of two elementary schools, Templeton Elementary School, which um, is you know based closer to downtown in Bloomington, hasn't always performed as well, um, and uh, Child's Elementary School, which is one of the um, higher performing schools. Uh, so that is, you know, not something that's gone ahead yet, but we might see that merger coming up soon. Well, let's also say one is sort of a low income school and one is a high income yeah. school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's just put it that way. Well, Bob, I want to get your take on this too, because I know you've been the editor on many of these stories. And normally I feel like with referendums in particular in Monroe County, you basically think it's going to be a slam dunk. Um, how much do you think just uh, maybe criticism of Superintendent Oswald played into the second referendum? Well, I, I think, you know, my take on it is that the issues with the high school schedules and the perception that that the superintendent was trying to force those issues um, made people um, – well, just look at him and say, I don't know if I want to give him any more of the money because I'm not sure what he's going to do with it. I'm not sure I trust him. And I think that's why this referendum, I mean, the previous referendum, which was for basically faculty and staff salaries, won by, what, 65 percent mm-hmm. to 35 percent, something like that. This one, which was for preschool education, won 50 and a half percent to 40 and 49 and a half percent. And I and I think that the cause was right. I think that the um, – I think people were just upset with the school superintendent yeah. and what was going on. So, yeah, I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, I'm curious just from your perspective, the merger of these schools. Did that – is that something you've heard talked about? Yeah, the things I've heard – well, I mean, there have, been, there have been discussions about the Monroe County Community School Corporation districting for years and years because there are some pockets of – low-income students who wind up at places like uh, Fairview and Templeton. And it's based on, you know, the free and reduced lunch that you can see in those those statistics. But every year, the parents don't want to redistrict. They want their kids to go to neighborhood schools. And so any kind of – this is they're, – they're being very careful not to call this a redistricting plan. Um, because those are very unpopular. But right now, the idea that you would take um, the the child's elementary school, which has like 3% free and reduced lunch, and merge it with Templeton, which is much, much higher numbers. And I think there there's an idea to, to merge university and Fairview as well, which are similarly um, you know, disparate numbers. I don't think there's going to be very popular at all with with parents, and I don't know what the school board's going to say about it, but um, it's going to be a big issue. Yeah. I would sure. be remiss, too, if I didn't say some of the money MCCSC has spent was on the purchase of the <clears throat> former the former Herald Times, Times building. building. Right. Your former office. My former office. And yeah. they're turning that into some kind of community Ad- center? Administration. A welcome center, I think they said. A welcome center. Yeah, administrative offices. So if uh, anybody out there has questions or issues you want us to talk about, you can certainly send us your questions to, to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also send us questions on X, formerly Twitter, at Noon Edition. So I, I wonder about the upcoming elections. There are, um, Kayla, there are lots of different offices. I mean, it's not just the governor's race, not just the Senate race, but there are a lot of different offices that are up this year. Do you expect anything unusual in, for instance, the, the race races for legislative offices? Well, um, you know, Jerry Torr's seat up in Carmel could be a bit of a, a crapshoot. Um, yeah, th- there's been a couple long timers who have uh, left kind of unexpectedly, although Jerry Torr always talked about retiring, but, you know, um, who who occupies some key positions. Um, Donna Shibley, too, um, 
both up in Hamco. Um, and, you know, those, of course, are some might argue purple, some might <laughs> dispute that argument, purple areas uh, or maybe trending toward purple. So eyes are certainly on those seats. I don't know about terribly unexpected. Um, you know, during the municipal election, we certainly saw um, some interesting mayoral elections in some of our small cities um, turn blue. Um, and, you know, it, but when it comes to these statewide races, you know, Indiana's so solidly red, it's, it's hard to extrapolate that to the state races. Um, so I'm pretty keen on the Senate and, and governor's race at the moment. Um, I, I can't say I predict too many surprises for these, um, you know, House and Senate uh, state districts. I'd, I'd love any inside knowledge you have about what Holcomb might do next. And also Mike Pence, he dropped out of the presidential contest. So, I mean, do you what do you expect for both of them? I'm sure they're they're not done. Holcomb is an interesting case. Um, you know, he he's young yet in terms of politics, but a little you, there's contingents of the party that aren't his biggest fans. I don't know that he would be as competitive in future Indiana races as he used to be, um, you know, and so he, he in, in an interview with one of the, his year end interviews um, that he, he does with every media outlet, but in, with me, he mentioned in terms of his next steps, you know, focusing on the job he has now, finishing it out and then deciding, give it a couple months and then decide. And he said, and that way I won't have any conflicts of interest. Hmm. And to me that signals, well, maybe he's looking at some kind of private industry. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's, he's been, it's been a kind of a mystery, um, even to people a bit closer to him who I've talked to for him. Pence, um, you know, he always wanted the presidency. That was yeah. his lifelong goal. Um, so this is a pretty big blow, what happened. And I think he knows that this was his shot. Um, so, but I haven't heard specifically what would be next. Maybe now's the time to look for a cushy gig that's less stressful. Yeah. <laughs> like Mitch Daniels did, you know? Um, so unclear on that front. It's curious he's in Israel. I thought that yeah. was surprising. Right. Well. Uh, Okay, I have to bring this up. It's, it's January 5th. We're talking about Mike Pence. It was January 6th, three years ago, that he um, did what the vice president needed to do and certified the Electoral College vote. The, you know, the elephant in the room for all elections this year, it seems like, is still Donald Trump. What kind of impact is he going to have? And Max, I'm going to turn to you first. You know, Terre Haute used to be the bellwether county how Terre Haute went, how Vigo County went, the rest of the country went. Is Trump still a looming figure there? Well, I would think he still um, will will perform um, in a very strong fashion. You know, by the time we get to an Indiana primary, uh, it may pretty well already be decided. So I don't think the Republicans are going to be having to face uh, any major question. Uh, and uh, just the nature of um, of the demographics anymore, you would you would think that whatever Republican runs is still going to have an advantage um, in Vigo County uh, for for a place that just less than ten years ago voted twice for Barack Obama. It would appear now that uh, there wouldn't be any chance somebody a candidate like that uh, could uh, could do well. That doesn't mean that there 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 isn't possibilities. There are pockets of of, of liberalism in Vigo County, for sure, and in Terre Haute, uh, there's, but it, it shrunk, and it's it's all very compacted uh, in the city, and um, uh, you know Trump's um, influence outside will will do well. I am curious about this new in newfound influence of organized labor that we saw some really really interesting things happen and sort of a resurgence of uh, the influence of organized labor. And uh, could could that possibly start bringing some of these uh, some of these blue collar workers that used to be Democrat in Vigo County? Could it kind of pull them back uh, toward the center and, and make them more uh, more volatile in terms of how they vote? That's something that I'll be curious to see happens. But for now, I don't I don't see that. 
that Trump's, Trump can be affected, although I do note that Republicans and Vigo Henry do not want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You, you cannot get very many people to go on the record. You say, hey, you want to t- let's talk about the election and Donald Trump and they'll run from you. So what does I that mean? I have this experience too. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to ask yeah, the similar question to, to Kayla. I mean, is, is Donald Trump still the champion of the Republican Party here in Indiana? There is an interesting level of reticence to align among the gubernatorial candidates to align themselves with Trump, obviously, except for Mike Braun, um, who got Trump's endorsement and who endorsed Trump himself. Um, I've, I've asked all of them, you know, what's your posture toward Trump? And I get a lot of squirrely answers, apart from, again, Braun, but even Curtis Hill, too, has expressed support for Trump. But, you know, I, I think in this race oh, and with all the um, the volatile situation uh, Trump finds himself in, the risk reward calculation for these candidates in terms of being like full throated support of him is very difficult, particularly, you know, if you don't think you would get Trump's endorsement and clearly they're not going to except because he already endorsed Braun. Um, you know, w- might you have more to lose than to gain if you, you know, f- full-heartedly support him, but he doesn't support you back? And what, you know, it, and I also think they don't necessarily want to call attention to Trump and Trump support because then voters, you know, might be more likely to say, well, huh, who does Trump support? And that answer is broad. So mm-hmm. it draws more attention to their opponent, Mike Braun. And so I think everyone is trying to avoid that like the plague. Ethan, I'm not going to have you answer a question about republicanism, not from your uh, seat here (laughs) in Monroe County. I appreciate it. But I do want to ask about uh, another issue, and that is the the separation of IUPUI into Indiana University, Indianapolis, and Purdue University at or in Indianapolis. Have you been following that issue closely, and, and what do you expect to see coming up? Well, I haven't been following it as closely as I've been following some things in IU Bloomington, uh, but I have, uh, from from what I have seen and what I have covered, uh, there's been a lot of, it seems like, confusion in the past year in terms of how exactly that split's going to happen with these shared faculties and shared resources. You know, who goes to Purdue, who goes to IU Indianapolis? Um there's also been a lot of capital investment by IU in Indianapolis. They're building some very large new um, labs up there. They're building a lot of new infrastructure. Um, while for the most part, things in Bloomington are in maintenance mode. Um, so there is a lot of um, of uh, like infrastructure expansion that's going on in Indianapolis. Um, and I think that also does have to do with you know, as I was saying earlier, this kind of increasing um, synthesis between uh, the private tech R&D sector, uh, the university, Indiana University, and the state house where they're trying to create this sort of tech corridor in southern and central Indiana. Uh, And part of that is increasing Indiana University's presence and its research presence in Indianapolis, where it's closer to lawmakers and it's closer to some of these other large industry centers. Mm-hmm. Kayla, does that have uh, you know when you when you're covering the state house, do you see that issue as something to keep an eye on? You know that hasn't come up quite as much. Um, uh, this session, I think, is just going to be very tightly focused on education and child care. Gotcha. Okay. And Max, I'm going to ask you about that from from the standpoint of, you know, Indiana State. And you talked about Indiana State University and some of the challenges it's had going forward. Where do you see it positioning itself in 2024 and beyond? Well, it's going to be the job of uh, – uh, you know, the next president, and it's going to be a big job. There's going to be some messes for that uh, for that new president to, to clear up. So I think it will, uh, the university will have an opportunity uh, to try to reestablish itself. Um, but in terms of it, this is exactly how they're going to go about trying to do that. They're probably going to pretty much stay on the 
the current course with their emphasis on technology, on education, on healthcare as being their primary uh, areas uh, uh, of academic uh, study. And that's what they want to provide. It's those that, that there are jobs in those sectors and that's what they want to try to feed. Uh, and then they've got to find uh, a way to tap into, um, you know, again, a declining demographic, uh, you know, and other forces that that are leading uh, people not to go to college in the numbers that they they used to. So, um, I, you know, truly is the challenge. How they end up uh, going about it, I, I, I don't see any dramatic change. Uh, but the new president has, you know, has a big has a big job and and the university is going to be really relying on that person to um, to, to set some direction that, that feels a little more positive. What, what is the enrollment now at ISU? Do well, you it's down between seven and 8,000 and oh, from a high point of almost twice that yeah. much. Uh, I mean, the pandemic hurt a lot of medium-sized, smaller universities. We know that. Uh, and, um, and, and so they're, 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 they're suffering from that. They're, they're pulling out of that. There are signs. Their freshman classes have been larger the last couple of years. So that's a good sign. But the overall enrollment still continues to, to decline. It is slowed. I think they're trying to get that stabilized so that then they, they can, there's less concern about, uh, you know, about that particular factor, which is a big deal. And you also have, I mean, you have several colleges in, right. in Terre Haute. Um, so if you're looking like Rose, Rose Holman, those schools, are those still stable? Oh, extremely stable. Yeah. You know, they, they certainly serve a, they serve a certain purpose that, that is, is, is a very active and not going to go away. Um, you, know, they, you know, they're after really a certain type of student. Um, so, um, you know, St. Mary of the Woods uh, College, uh, probably because it's so much smaller and they are liberal arts focused, uh, probably has the biggest job uh, there. Rose Holman with its technology sector is, is probably a lot more stable than, than uh, any, any others would be. Okay. Can, I want to bring up carbon sequestration because you and Bob did a, a remote show and um, as someone listening to it from <coughs> Bloomington, it seemed very heated. Um, <laughs> so, Max, can you just tell us what is going what, – what's next for that project? What's right. going to happen this year? Well, and it's uh, going to happen this year and we expect it's going to happen early in the year. Hmm. We are expecting the Department of Energy to – release its uh, the funding uh, for Wabash Valley Resources to proceed onward with their development of their project. That is what has been waiting on. I think it's, you know, they almost, they expected it last summer, then it got delayed as because this is one of the largest project of its kind in the country, uh, the, the, you know, the feds are being very careful, making sure they've got this put together right uh, because it will be uh, uh, a template for further further projects of this type uh, going forward in terms of green green energy development. So um, w- you know we're expecting it. The latest I heard was sometime in January, oh. but that has been uh, put back before. So nobody would be shocked if they saw it put back again. But it's a possibility that you know almost it's an any day now sort of situation that we could. We could hear that the Department of Energy has, has approved the project and released its funding for for the project. We've got less than 10 minutes to go in the program, so I want you guys to start thinking about your uh, final comments for us. But first, I want to go to Kayla <laughs> and ask her about the issue of early childhood education. I, I You know, Max and I have been writing newspaper editorials for years and years, and I think I wrote my first one on the need for in, increased funding for for preschool education in Indiana about 15 years ago. And uh, Monroe County has been at the forefront of this for a long time. The, the, even the referendum last year or this year was for increased preschool education funding. Um, what is the state likely to do? What are they, what are they looking to do? Well, uh, right now the discussion is m- mostly has to do with child care. So I, I suppose that would include early education, okay. like three to five, but also, you know, infants, one-year-olds, two-year-olds, um, the whole, that whole preschool age. Um, and by that, I mean, not just preschool, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, so um, it, it's interesting this summer, there was a health 
like a general like public health um, interim study committee that the, their first meeting was and rather that was entirely focused on childcare, and okay. um, I, I guess I didn't quite expect that to come up in under the realm of that particular committee. And then even uh, you know the the chair of that committee has even made public comments saying, you know, I was actually kind of surprised. I was ta taken aback by just how much of a crisis this this is. It was like a seven hour meeting. It was really long. All this testimony um, about the gaps and access and how pricey it is. But the the struggle is, you know, we're in a non-budget year, um, and there's no interest in opening up the budget again. So, you know, what can they do that um, doesn't take money uh, is the big question. That that interim study committee came up with some recommendations, and the the chair of that committee has said that he plans to. Um, write a bill that incorporates some of them. Um, some of those suggestions included um, uh, maybe lowering the age of, you know, uh, who can be alone with a, a child at a licensed center from 21 to 18, which, you know, theoretically would um, help the workforce shortage. Um, making childcare workers uh, eligible, like automatically for uh, childcare subsidies for themselves, like for their own children, um, allowing people to seek um, tuition and coverage for uh, childcare credentials. The state has a workforce ready grant that, um, you know, adding another category to that workforce ready grant. So, you know, th they're looking at ways ma mainly on the supply side um, to sort of loosen regulations um, and allow more players in the space. Max, I want to ask you, I don't know how closely you follow the federal death penalty, but certainly it's been something our newsroom has done a lot on in George Hale's podcast on Rush to Kill. You know, something that President Biden ran on was this campaign promise of ending the federal death penalty. So, I mean, what do you think with a, with a year left in his tenure? Is this a possibility? Folks in Terre Haute, I mean, do they, do they talk about these things? I guess, too, I'm just curious. You know, that really is one of those things that the folks in Terre Haute try not to, to think too much about, try really? not to talk about. You know, they made a deal with the federal government many years ago, and they knew that there would be the possibility of downsides to, uh, to supporting uh, the placement of, of the federal death row there. Um, you know, maybe maybe they didn't quite uh, expect some of the things that have happened, um, but uh, you know they have just sort of uh, tried to tolerate it and do their best uh, dealing with it. That there was a lot of jobs that came in there that did benefit the community, and it's a stable workforce. Uh, so I, you know, I I think there's probably there are probably those in the community that think about another Donald Trump presidency and think about the 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 orgy of death that went on out there in the closing uh, months of Trump's term was, uh, I think it was unsettling to a yeah. lot of people. It was, it's, it's just like, just make this stop. And um, I think there was a sense of relief when it stopped. And then, of course, we haven't had any since Biden took office. What would happen if uh, Trump came back in again? It's a very real concern. All right. Kayla Dwyer from the Indy Star, I want to ask you to, what have we missed? What have we missed that, that you're going to be paying attention to in 2024? <clears throat> um, oh, you know what? The Eberhardt Casino yeah. fallout. Yeah. I think this is going to be a big, big, big story. Um, you know, federal prosecutors have hinted, well, well, actually outright said, you know, this is a conspiracy and um there, there will likely be more indictments to come. I think the third floor of the state house is watching that with great interest and perhaps some trepidation. Um, you know, this this is sort of a, a blow up of uh, you know, twenty five years of um, just how powerful the casino lobby is in the state house. You know, the, um, they are banned from donating to political um, candidates, uh, casino industry leaders, but there's many ways to influence people, illegal and legal. And um, this is a huge, huge, huge story to follow in terms of the public corruption. In, in case your listeners need a reminder, um, Sean Eberhardt of Shelbyville, Republican state representative, was 
um, pled guilty to the honest services fraud, um, the the charges that he um, influenced a piece of legislation that was beneficial to Spectacle Entertainment, a big casino operator in Indiana, in exchange for a very lucrative job. And uh, what else did we miss? The Senate race. The 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 thing that's going to be interesting about the Senate race is this two primary rule challenge. Um, Indiana has a law that says um, if in order to run in in the Republican Party, you need to have voted in that party for the last two primaries. John Rust, the egg farmer, did not uh, pass that rule, and his county chair would not sign off on his. Um, on his run for Senate. Um, so that would have prevented him from getting the ballot, getting on the ballot, but he sued. Marion County judge just recently ruled that law unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court, the Indiana Supreme Court is going to take it up in February. So it'll be really interesting to see where that goes. I, you know, I would say that Banks is a shoo-in, Jim Banks, U.S. Rep. Jim Banks is a shoo-in for that race, but Rust has a lot of money to spend and time apparently since he left the board of Roseacre Farms um, a few months ago. Um, and sorry, one more thing, Todd Rakita, <laughs> oh, yeah. what is the Indiana Supreme Court <laughs> going to decide? Um, his fate is in their hands right now and he just filed another brief basically lambasting them, um, accusing them of you know caving to politics in the, the treatment of him. So, you know, he's 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 uh, planting his feet firmly in the ground and we'll see where that takes him. Okay, thank you, Kayla. Ethan, thank 30 you. seconds. 30 seconds, all right. Well, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention climate change. We've seen a lot of uh, disasters in the past year. We saw tornadoes in Vigo County. We saw uh, drought across the state, and these problems are going to keep getting worse. Um, Environmental Resilience Institute at IU has been doing a lot to try and prepare small municipalities that don't have those resources to face these challenges, but um, they are going to be something that Indiana is going to have to look out for. Max, you're going to have to wrap it up in 10 seconds. Vigo <laughs> County, big big story coming up soon will be the opening of, uh, speaking of casinos, uh, the opening of the uh, casino in Terre Haute. Uh, it is not a spectacle casino. It's uh, Churchill Downs Casino. We expect it sometime in the spring, uh, and uh, we'll see how that takes off. Okay. Thank you to Max Jones from the Terre Haute Tribune Star, Kayla Dwyer from the Indy Star, and Ethan Sandweiss from WTIU-WFIU News. Thank you to Sarah Whitmire, my co-host, Mike Pashkash, our engineer, and Nathan Moore, our producer. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. <laughs>